All right, if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn with me to Ruth chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 6 through 22, uh, which is a long passage, so uh, buckle up. But uh, turn there with me now, and uh, we're going to continue our sermon series through the book of Ruth. Uh, something that we're talking about this morning um, is something I, I don't think enough of us do, and probably not very often, and so I'm, I'm really excited about what I think God is showing us in this passage. So uh, let's jump right in and uh, hear now God's holy true and life-giving word. Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 through 22. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you. Or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you so much that you speak to us, even now, through your word. Holy Spirit, would you take the things that we've read in this passage and lay them on our hearts that weave them into the very fabric of our hearts. Lord Jesus, may our eyes be on you as we think about 
the things said in these verses, and would you use this time to speak to us and teach us and shape us and make us more like you and help us to believe the good news of the gospel and that you are faithful to us, you are committed to us, you are loyal to us, not because of something in us, but because of what is in you, your goodness and your glory. So bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the words in this passage uh, is the Hebrew word hesed, which uh, we talked about a little bit last week. We'll talk about it a number of times because it comes up repeatedly. And that word hesed means this. It's, it's sometimes translated as loving kindness. It's sometimes translated as steadfast love. And it has this real emphasis of loyalty. And, uh, you know, loyalty is, is not something that we talk about too often. When's the last time you had a conversation about somebody's loyalty? I was reading about this dog in uh, Japan who lived a long time ago. And in fact, uh, he, this dog left a very uh, big impression on, on people in Japan. There's statues of this dog in various places in Japan. Uh, the dog's name is Hachiko, and uh, Hachi for short. And um, it was... Hatchie was an Akita. That was, he was born in about 1920, or in the 1920s. And uh, he was owned by a university professor who uh, would take him basically to the train station every morning, and then the dog would go home. And then in the evening, when the university professor was coming back, the dog would come and meet him there. And they would go through this routine every day. And uh, tragically, this university professor died one day at work. And so that night when the dog... Hatchie went to the train station. Uh, his, his owner never came home. But interestingly, what happened was this dog ended up coming back to the train station day after day after day. Every time in the evening when he normally would have met his owner there, the university professor, the dog would go and he would sit there. And people would try to pet him and try to give him treats and things like that. But the dog would just sit there attentively waiting for his uh, owner to return. And obviously... His owner wouldn't return. But this dog sat there every evening for the next nine years until the dog died in 1935. And so on these statues of this dog, uh, it says uh, Chuken Hachiko, which means the faithful dog Hachiko. And so still, all these years later, 84 some years later today, Hachi still serves as a shining example of loyalty Uh, to the Japanese people, that committedness, that faithfulness. And again, it's not something that we talk about too often because I don't think we see too many examples of incredible faithfulness and loyalty. But we want it. We're wired to want to even need someone being completely loyal to us, someone being completely faithful and committed to us. And that's why it's so... Amazing what we get to look at this morning in this passage of the book of Ruth. Because what we see in Ruth is this incredible loyalty. Loyalty loyalty that doesn't even make sense. This committedness, this steadfast love that Ruth shows to Naomi. And really what that does is it helps us understand God's loyalty to us. His committedness to us. His faithfulness to us. The reality is that longing that we all have 
for someone to be completely committed to us, totally loyal to us, is fulfilled in Christ. Christ is both the proof and the fulfillment of God's breathtaking loyalty to us. And so we want to talk about that this morning uh, in three, three ways. I want to talk about first, Ruth's unbelievable loyalty to Naomi. And then we'll talk about Naomi's unusual loyalty to God. And then third, uh, quickly we'll talk about God's unsurpassed loyalty to us. So those three things this morning. Uh, Ruth's unbelievable loyalty to Naomi. And Naomi's unusual loyalty to God and God's unsurpassed loyalty to us. So, let's talk about Ruth's unbelievable loyalty to Naomi. And what we want to recognize here is that Ruth's really inexplicable loyalty to Naomi is a picture of Christ's inexplicable loyalty to us. So, let's talk about it. Um, Last week, when we left off, uh, Naomi's life was a complete disaster. And uh, now, if you look at verse 6, you'll see that Naomi has decided to go back to Judah, back uh, to her homeland. She had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So now she's going to return to God, return to God's people. And then in the midst of uh, her disastrous life and situation, not only is she going back to her homeland, but her daughters-in-law are going to try to go with her. Okay, and so we see that in verse 7. And so what happens is they're, they're on the way, and Naomi stops, and she starts telling them to go back, which is pretty remarkable if you think about it. Uh, Naomi here is you know, in, in the lowest point of her life, and she's trying to address the perceivable needs of Ruth and Orpah instead of allowing them to come with her and help her. So it's just very interesting sacrificial love towards them that she's showing. But what's happening is, uh, I would love to spend a lot of time looking at all the things that she says. But in short, what she's doing here, what Naomi is doing is urging these two young women to go back so they can get married so they can have families, have stability. This is in a time and culture when if a woman was not married or if she wasn't living in her parents' household, she was very vulnerable, probably would wind up destitute. So look at verse 9. kind of sums it up. She says, The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And so again, that's what she's wanting. There's several ways that she shows here. She wants them to go back, to find new husbands, to get married, to have that stability. And so in verse 14, we see that Orpah, she decides, yep, that's a good plan. So she goes back. But it says, Ruth clung to her. And here's what's interesting. That word clung is a Hebrew word that normally is used in reference to marriage. And so what you see is an incredible commitment of Ruth to Naomi here. And so Ruth, uh, Naomi actually, one more time, she tries to get uh, uh, Ruth to go back. But then Ruth delivers what's one of the most beautiful speeches in all of the scriptures. Take a look at verse 16. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more so also. Uh, More also, uh, if anything but death parts me from you. And then verse 18 says that Naomi realizes at this point, Ruth isn't going anywhere except with her. Now here's what's so 
interesting and shocking about this. Ruth's decision to be loyal, faithful, committed to Naomi, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, for her to do this is, is truly nonsensical. She's abandoning her homeland. She's abandoning her people. She's abandoning her traditions. She's abandoning basically all hope of having a family at some point and having that security. It doesn't make sense. It's completely inexplicable. Why would she do this? And the reason is beautiful. She wants to be with Naomi. She wants to remain with Naomi. To keep that relationship intact. Think, think back to Hatchie, right? The dog. Why did the dog run back up those station steps every day and wait for his master? Was it just obedience or was it because that dog wanted to be with his master? He had this commitment, was every day waiting, hoping the master would come home, his owner would come home. And that's what we have to realize is being demonstrated here. Ruth is telling Naomi that she wants to stay with her. She wants to have this relationship remain intact. She wants to stay united to Naomi. Now, maybe if this was like there was some romantic element, it might help us understand this, but that's not it at all, of course. She simply is committed to Naomi. She is remaining loyal to Naomi, and it really doesn't make any sense. There doesn't seem to be any sensible reason for this. And that's actually what makes Ruth such a Christ-like figure for us. It makes Ruth someone who shows us the kind of commitment, the kind of faithfulness, the kind of loyalty that we have from Christ. I mean, if you think about it, when we look at Ruth's non-obligatory, seemingly foolish loyalty to Naomi, it really does picture Christ's non-obligatory Seemingly foolish loyalty to us. In many ways, we could say Christ is the true and better Ruth because the kind of unbelievable loyalty that Ruth shows Naomi is indicative of the unbelievable, even inexplicable loyalty that Christ shows to us. I mean, think about Ruth's speech. And really, you could apply that speech from Christ to believers uh, with one significant change, maybe. Instead of Christ saying these things to us and uh, abandoning his God for our God, what he does is he is abandoned by God on the cross so that God can be our God. Think about this. Imagine this, this, what Ruth is saying uh, to Naomi is really what Christ is saying to us. Do not urge me to leave you or return from being with you. For where you go, I will go. And where you live, I will live. Your people shall be my people. And I'll be abandoned by God so that God can be your God forever. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And not even death will part me from you, we could say as well. And if we'll just think for a second about how inexplicable that is, how it doesn't make any sense that this perfect, holy God would in Christ be fully loyal to us, then it begins to change our lives. I mean, why would God do this? God is not obligated at all. Christ is not obligated at all to us. We who are sinners, we who are selfish, we who are constantly uh, ignoring Him or disobeying Him or doubting Him or rebelling against Him, I mean, we have given God no reason to be so loyal, so committed to us, yet He sends His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to redeem us, to pay for our sins so that we can be forgiven. And it's on the cross then that we're seeing just how loyal 
just how committed, just how faithful God is to us at all times. He always has been, he always will be perfectly faithful to us. And Christ proves this for us. It doesn't make any sense that God would be so loyal to sinners like us, but he is. Why? Because God is a God of grace. And he's loyal to us, he's committed to us, not because of something that's in us, because of, but because of what's in him, that he's good and he's gracious. And so when we see Ruth's absolute commitment to Naomi, see Christ's absolute commitment to you and to me. Now here's the thing though, when we think about that, if we say, okay, God is loyal to me, Christ is loyal to me, he's committed to me, the hard part is when we are facing very difficult circumstances. That's where the rubber meets the road and that's where we want to question that. Wait a minute, how can I believe you're this committed to me, you're this faithful to me if everything is falling apart, right? That's when we tend to question God's faithfulness, when things are really difficult. And that's why what we see next here in Naomi is so helpful. And so here's what we want to look at next. Naomi's unusual loyalty to God. And we're going to see her unusual loyalty to God, particularly in verses 19 and 20. And here's one of the things I'm so excited about uh, to talk about this morning. And here's the point. Lament is an essential part of remaining loyal to God when we're suffering. Okay. God's going to teach us through what we see happening in Naomi's life here. That lament, and we'll talk about what that is, lament is an essential part of our remaining loyal to God when we're suffering, when we're facing tragedy and disaster. And it's probably pretty likely that most of us do not have a habit or frequency of lamenting. So let me flesh this out. Let's remember the facts of the story. Uh, Naomi left the promised land because of a famine. We saw that back in the first few verses. Then her husband died, then her sons died, uh, and she's got no heir, and she's destitute. Uh, And so at that point, Naomi, more than anybody else, or more than most in the scriptures, we should say, Naomi, more than most people in the scriptures, had reasons to outright deny God. Right? If we look at the people in the scriptures, Naomi has the most reasons uh, to, to completely say God is, it doesn't exist or God is not good. But uh, what we see here is Naomi, in an unusual way, clinging to her faith in God. Okay. Uh, she's gone back to the promised land and uh, Ruth has shown that, that, uh, that her loyalty to her and now she's in the promised land and, and as they get there, the, the, the women are saying, is this Naomi? Is Naomi back? And then look at what Naomi says in verse 20. She says, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now, when you first read that, it can sound like something that it isn't. This is not Naomi denying God. This is not Naomi giving up on her faith. In fact, 
what it is, is Naomi is attributing all these disasters in her life to God. That it's all under his control. The Lord brought this calamity on me. It's remarkable. Now, she says she doesn't want to be called Naomi, which means lovely. She wants to be called Mara, which means bitter. Because God, she says, has dealt very bitterly with her. But here's the thing. Naomi is not questioning God's character or his goodness. She's simply being brutally honest about how sorrowful and difficult God's providence in her life is at this moment. Uh, One scholar, Daniel Block, says, Naomi did not hereby ascribe moral evil to God. And what I would submit to you is that what we're seeing Naomi do is lamenting. She's being honest and vulnerable about just how difficult and hard God's providence in her life is at this point. And this is a really good time for us to differentiate between two things. We want to differentiate between grumbling and lamenting. There's a big difference in the scriptures between grumbling and lamenting. All through the Old Testament, we see God's people grumbling and they're frustrated and they're mad at God. They're grumbling. That's not lamenting. Uh, One pastor, a guy named J.R. Vassar, puts it really, really helpfully. He says, grumbling calls God's character into question. Lament calls God's character into action. Let me say that again. Grumbling calls God's character into question. Lament, on the other hand, calls God's character into action. And what Naomi is doing here is not grumbling and and showing that and, and suggesting God is not good and questioning his character. What she's saying is that this is God's providence. She's accepting what God has brought about in her life. And even setting the stage for God who is responsible for all this these bad things in her life to make them right. Uh, one uh, of the Bible scholars on this says this, that she notices that she uses the word Shaddai, the Hebrew word Shaddai, that's the Almighty. And uh, that word Shaddai in Hebrew, it, it refers to God in a certain way, and what, the, what he says is Naomi rightly refers to Shaddai in this context. Her fate could have come from no other source and also its future reversal. Thus, he says, Shaddai received the blame Will he also later receive the glory? And he's asking that, knowing the answer is yes. So here is Naomi, and she's fully recognizing that all these terrible things that have happened in her life are under God's control. Yet, she's not questioning his character. She's not questioning his goodness. She's not questioning questioning his love for her. She's simply acknowledging just how brutal her situation is. And that's lament. And she's not the only person who laments. We see lamenting all through the the Bible. Old Testament and New Testament. Lament is expressing our extreme disagreement with God's plan for our lives. But with faith. Lament is expressing our extreme disappointment in God's frowning providences at times. But with faith. Lament is expressing our extreme discouragement with God's plan for our lives at times, but with faith. It is expressing these things, still believing in God, believing that He's still faithful to us, He's still loyal to us. And Naomi is showing us how to lament, to be brutally honest about how difficult the things we're facing actually are, yet, without denying God's character, 
without denying God's goodness. I mean, have you, have you ever been that honest and vulnerable out loud to the Lord? I think a lot of times we're scared to do that because we feel like it somehow dishonors God if we aren't happy, cheery people. But it is profoundly glorifying to God to say, I cannot stand these circumstances and you're in control here, but I trust you. That's profoundly glorifying. It's profoundly glorifying. It's the cry of someone who understands that or doesn't quite understand why there's so much pain involved in a situation, but trusts the one who's sovereign over over that pain. I was reading about uh, these doctors who came up with the, the, the treatment for chemotherapy, or the uh, chemotherapy treatment for childhood leukemia that is today very, very sex- successful. Back in the 60s, they came up with this. And prior to their developing of this treatment, uh, not, very peop- not, very, not very many children survived childhood leukemia. Now 90% of kids that get childhood leukemia survive because of uh, the way that they developed this treatment. And uh, I was reading about that, and one of the doctors uh, who came up with this was um, being interviewed, and he was talking about just how difficult it was because in the process of this treatment, there were some very, very painful moments for these children. And he particularly was talking about the time when they would have to uh, check the marrow, check the bone marrow of these children to see if the treatment was working. And so he talks about in this interview how he would have to, the, the nurses and the parents would grab these children's legs and then they would take an 18 or 19 gauge needle and they would push it right through the shin bone into the marrow and draw out some marrow so that they could test it to see if the treatment was working. And he would say that when they were pushing that needle through the shin bone, the kids were, they were hysterical, right? They were crying out in total pain, absolute desperation. But they weren't questioning the doctor or their parents. They were simply being honest and without words, vulnerable about how difficult, how painful, how wretched that situation is. But the doctor knew and the kids knew that on the other side of this, There are good things. And lament is is when we choose to be totally honest, totally vulnerable with God about how difficult these circumstances that we're facing actually are. But we're so afraid of that. Because often in evangelicalism, we want to give the picture that if you become a Christian, everything's awesome all the time. And so here we see Naomi teaching us something that's invaluable for facing suffering, for facing pain, for facing difficult things. She's being very brutally honest, yet she's not questioning God's character. She's not questioning God's goodness. And she's actually setting the stage for God to prove his loyalty, prove his faithfulness to her. And if you are still a little apprehensive about actually crying out to God, and saying, this really hurts, this is terrible, I hate this, I can't stand this, why would you let this happen? If you're still struggling with that, think about the ultimate lamenter himself, the Lord Jesus. 
Because Jesus teaches us to lament more than anyone. On the cross, when Jesus is suffering to pay for our sins, so that through faith in him we can be reconciled to God, forgiven, promised eternal life, on the cross, Jesus laments. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when he says, why have you forsaken me? He's, he's lamenting, he's acknowledging. But what did he begin it with? My God, my God. And yes, he's quoting a psalm, but very intentionally. To show that while the pain and suffering he's experiencing is absolutely brutal, his God is still God. His God is still in control. And what did both God the Father and God the Son know? That what God was doing, what the Son was submitting to, was bringing about the salvation of sinners and the eventual redemption of the world. And so the question is, how Christ-like would you like to be? Because we can't be Christ-like without lamenting. We can't be Christ-like without first believing that God will always be faithful to us. Okay, think of Ruth's faithfulness or loyalty to Naomi. But then believing that part of how we trust God is being that honest, being that vulnerable. I think some of us probably should have some homework this Sunday. That we should find some time to either get alone with the Lord or maybe with others and let it out. Cry it out. Do you know you can say anything on your heart to the Lord, he can handle it? And do you know what happens when you let it out and you just let it out and you, and you talk about how difficult it is and you scream how frustrating it is and you say, I don't understand this and you get it all out. You know what happens? A big hammer doesn't come down and smash you. But rather we feel the embrace of God. You hear, not audibly, but you feel, you hear God saying, I hear you, I hear you. And I'm with you. And we begin to experience more of God's, thirdly this morning, his unsurpassed loyalty to us. We talked about Ruth's uh, loyalty to Naomi. We talked about Naomi's unusual loyalty to God. And now God's unsurpassed loyalty to us. Here's why I think it's so important that we as a church and we as Christians learn to lament. Um, Heads up, this is not the last time we're going to talk about lament in the next year. I promise you that. Uh, Because... Often it is after lament, after that full recognition, full honesty about how terrible this situation is, yet remaining faithful to God, believing in God, trusting in God throughout. Often after lament is when the first rays of light break into that darkness that we're experiencing. We see it in Naomi's story. Look at verse 22. Hope often follows lament. She has lamented. She has talked, she has said that she knows God's sovereign over these terrible things that have happened to her. But she's not questioning his character. She's not questioning his goodness. She's not denying him. She's not doubting that he loves her. And then verse 22 says, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now remember, Naomi's tale of woe began uh, with a famine in Bethlehem. And she's gone and all these terrible things have happened and now she's back. Bethlehem means house of bread. 
So her story began in irony. There's no food in the house of bread. Now she's come back. Right as this harvest is about to take place. And don't miss this literary beauty here. Once she fully both accepts the the loyalty of Ruth and then laments and recognizes the challenges that she's facing yet with faith in God, all of a sudden, this famine is, is over. It's the beginning of the barley harvest. And you can believe that not only will there be actual food now in Bethlehem, but there will be these moments where God is now beginning to harvest the seeds that he's planted in these terrible situations that Naomi has been through. It's the beginning of the harvest. Often, it's after we lament, after we get brutally honest and uh, vulnerable with God, that he begins to harvest the good things, the good seeds that he planted when we were at our darkest hour. So, class, your homework for today is to trust that your God is faithful to you. Your God is loyal to you. Your God has unwavering commitment to you. And yes, it may not look like it right now. It may not look like it at other times in your life. But it is true. Your God is committed to you. Christ is the proof. Now, show your loyalty to him by being completely honest with just how terrible these situations are. Don't feel like you have to put on a happy face. Put on an honest face. Weep it out. Cry it out. Feel the embrace of God. And watch for those rays of light to follow. Watch for the beginning of the barley harvest. Because God can handle our inability to handle the things he brings about in our lives. He's big enough and he's faithful. Let's pray. Father, um, I know how it feels so wrong for us to say that your providence in our lives seems wrong. It seems bad or it seem, it's so hard for us to handle. I know how hard it is to say to you, Lord, I hate this. I don't know why you're doing this. I don't know why you're allowing this. I know how scary it is to say with complete honesty to you that we do not like the situation, that we do not like your plan at this moment. But I also know how you show up. I also know how you begin to prove your faithfulness. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters in the room. I pray for any guests, non-believers, that they would, they would put their faith in you today. Maybe even beginning with lament. And that you would come to them in their pain. Because the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and lifts those who are crushed in spirit. And so would you help us lament And would you wrap us up in your love and strengthen us for a life of continued faith in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.